morning again. I want to introduce you to one more couple that is here this morning that has been dear to us. If you have visited the ranch where Dean and Denise uh, are ministering and leading the orphanage there, you undoubtedly in the last few years have bumped into this couple who were absolutely a godsend for the ministry there. Uh, They are here with us in New Orleans. They are humidity training, and I'll explain what that means in just a moment. But Matthew and Lee, where are you guys? Somewhere over here. Stand up so everybody can get a look at you. Way over here is Matthew, and there's Lee. Great to have you guys with us. They have served at the ranch for about the last three and a half years. They are from New Jersey, from a sister Sovereign Grace Church there in New Jersey. And they are answering a call from God to go now to the Philippines and to serve an orphanage there. And, you know, we we shared about Dean's story a couple of weeks ago, uh, just the amazement that God took this guy from New Orleans and brought him to to Mexico on a mission that was not clearly spelled out and got him exactly where he needed to be to fulfill the role exactly as God had ordained for him to be in that place. Something that he had not considered that that would be what he'd be doing with his life. But God made it clear. Well, similar story for Matthew and Lee. That uh, it was just God's ordained steps that, that they would be in a church that was adopted into Sovereign Grace about the same time as we were. And that through that, they would connect with Dean and Denise in Mexico. They would feel led by God to go serve in an orphanage so that God could prepare them to go and lead an orphanage in the Philippines. And so God ordains your steps. When you don't know what's going on, God knows what's going on. And he's getting you where you need to be. So we look forward to keeping up with their story and how we can pray for them and support them in the future as they again, serve in a much, much needed capacity of caring for uh, children throughout this world. So I'm glad for them to be here. The the Philippines, as you know, has got a lot of humidity, so they thought they'd come here to New Orleans and sweat with the best of us. It's something that we have to offer here in New Orleans. It is humidity. I told them today is an especially good day to be here. So high humidity today. We'll turn to the Gospel of John. As you're turning there, thank you again, many of you who are praying for me and my family as we are sorting through medical information. Uh, We either have a great peace from God or we're just stupid. Um, I tend to lean towards the second option, just knowing myself as well as I do. But uh, I am having some further tests done for my melanoma and further tissue cut out a couple of weeks and then uh, visiting with an oncologist two weeks from now. So those would be ways that you can be praying for me uh, in the days ahead. And thank you so much for many of you who have gone out of your way to communicate that. Um, Grateful for so many caring folks. It's a blessing to be a part of this church. John chapter 15 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, let Let me preface this by saying something about what's about to be described in these passages. You know, I grew up fishing and hunting in coastal Louisiana. So I am, I am loyal to my southeast Louisiana roots and would maintain that there is not better hunting and fishing in the world. And 
what you'd find here. And my dad loved to hunt and fish. And so when we were kids, he found a, a little plot of land to get a lease and to build a camp. He built a camp when we were kids. And then we spent our childhood every other weekend about going down to outside of Port Sulphur. You'd actually have to load everything up in a boat, drive out on that boat into the swamp, 10 miles into the swamp, uh, no electricity, nothing there. If you brought electricity, sometimes we would, sometimes just candles and, uh, and lanterns and that sort of thing. But out in that swamp, he built a camp, and we spent our childhood years and adolescence just growing up fishing and watching the sun set. It was just it was beautiful uh, place to be. But in this beautiful environment, there were some strange elements located there as well. Now, if you fished in southeast Louisiana, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Dotting the landscape was lots of little sticks sticking out of the ground. Big sticks, actually. Pilings sticking out of the ground. Many of them still had tank terminals on top of them that were storing uh, oil that was being pumped out of the ground. So there was wells out there that were active. There was boats that were servicing. You know, my brother and I just were enamored with these big boats and work boats and all that stuff that made up the oil industry in that area. But into this beautiful environment... What you noticed about all that equipment was the sticks were coated with this junk called creosote. Right, you ever see this stuff? It's like black tar. And there was a reason why they coated these pilings with creosote. And the reason may be obvious to us. It may not be obvious to us. When we went to go build the camp out there, it was amazing what that environment out there would do to wood that was unprotected. We build, my dad, he'd put down plywood, and then you could come back in no time. And that salt water, humid environment out there would eat that plywood like it was paper. And next thing you know, your foot's going right through it. So you quickly learn anything that's going to exist in that environment needs to be specially treated, which was why all these things sticking up out of the ground were soaked in this tarry oil because it preserved those pilings from being eaten up by the saltwater environments. Uh, if you've ever seen you know, these boats that, that are living in this environment, these steel-hull boats would be eaten for lunch by those environments. If you've ever seen one taken out of the water, what you would not have seen without this is these giant hunks of what looks like metal attached to the bottom of the hull. They're, they're zinc anodes. And if you're a chemistry buff, you know what that's for. It is a means of keeping the hull from being attacked by the saltwater uh, without those anodes on the bottom, the, the saltwater corrosion actually attacks the anodes and you just replace the anodes. Without that, the boat would be eaten up and would just eventually just sink right in the water because it would eat right through the hull. So we have an illustration here in southeast Louisiana of what Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples to live in. He's going away and his disciples are going to live in a very hostile environment, a very beautiful environment but a very hostile environment right look at john 16 verse 1 and we'll back up into john 15 it's good to get before us why does jesus cover this ground verse 1 i have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away or the New American Standard says to keep you from 
stumbling. Why, why this presentation? Matt touched on this a couple of weeks ago. I think Peter mentioned it as well last week. This entire section is Jesus preparing his disciples to sort of be on their own. I'm going away. And you guys are going to be here now. Now, here's why it's going to be good. And he explains a lot of things. But this section is filled with sobering words. You're about to come under incredible persecution. It's, it's as though you are a foreign organism on planet Earth. And, and this planet's going to turn on you. It's going to attack you. When you go to walk out your faith and follow Christ, it's going to to come against you. And so words like persecution are used and attacks of the enemy are used in Scripture. So as a, as a believer, I think it's very important, and something I felt that we need to spend sufficient time in today, was to make sure that we are environmentally prepared to live our life in this world. Because what I see in the body of Christ today happening, published in churches even in our own lives, is a lot of rust in Christians' lives. This environment in this world, it is corrosive, and it begins to attack the surface of our lives. And, you know, rust does that. It just penetrates in. You know, one of the things that happened after all these years of driving down to Port Sulphur in this corrosive environment is you could walk by my dad's station wagon, which is what he had, you know, in the late 60s and early 70s. He had a station wagon. That was like the ultimate SUV. And you'd walk by the back fender. It was a joke. And it was sitting parked in the, in the yard. My brother and I walked by and you'd go, boom. And it would go, <laughs> you walk by again, boom. <laughs> Right. It was just rusting, 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 because there were no anodes on your car that you were driving down there to protect it. But, you know, there's a lot of Christians who are being attacked by the environment that if we walked by each other's lives and went, boom, there'd be a lot of rust falling because this world's saltwater environment is finding ways to corrode us. And therefore, Jesus is saying, I don't want you to stumble. I'm telling you these things so that you can take adequate measures to prevent that from happening. So let's look at what he says here in John 15, beginning in verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Now they didn't keep his word, did they? So they will not be keeping yours as well. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now 
They have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in the law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Now, I want to talk for a moment and just draw some thoughts from this passage about the environmental condition of the world. And so explore this with me from Jesus' own words when he goes to describe the world that you and I live in. Remember, this is, this is a world with captivating beauty that he is describing. He's not standing in some desert with no beauty to this terrain. He is standing in the midst of a world that is attractive, describing it this way. First thing he says is, the world hates. The world hates. It's interesting, the word that's used there in the original Greek language is the word viseo. It means this. It's usually implying active ill will in words and conduct. A persecuting spirit. Specifically as the opposite of agapeo, which means to love, and phileo, which means to befriend. Now, it's interesting in the context here, because what, G- what, what Peter taught us last week was Jesus teaching on love in the community of God. He said, amidst the community of God, love one another as I have loved you. That's agapeo. No longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. That's phileo. So Jesus just got finished using an expression that identifies how he loves us and how we're to love one another. And then immediately, it's like that catapults him into the contrast. It's like this is how the community of the believers are, but the community that you live in hates. It is not agapeo. It is miseo. It is active ill will and persecution. Now, you, you and I don't have a context for the word persecution. Honestly, we really do not. Historic Christianity has a context for persecution. The global environment has a context for persecution. You and I don't, don't know that the world hates in such a way that simply because you're a Christian, your life is in jeopardy. You're physically going to be abused. And that's the New Testament. That's throughout church history. That is going on today. I, I get regular updates. Uh, you guys will remember a number of years ago we had a man named Bob Fu who came and spoke to us about the uh, church in China. And he's very involved in supporting the church in China, seeking to help the persecution that's taking place over there to get alleviated. So I get regular reports still from his organization. And every week there is an update about some pastor, some church, some group of believers that have come under physical abuse and jail and mistreatment by the government in China. In parts of the Middle East today, believers, if you maintain a testimony of Christ or you leave Islam and embrace Christianity, your life is in jeopardy simply because of what you believe. Now, we happen to be in this weird little experiment called America. It's a strange place. Don't, don't, don't make the mistake of thinking that we're normal on the planet. We're the weird ones. The rest of the world lives differently than we do. I'm going to resist going off on this. Let me just make one political announcement here. <laughs> um, <laughs> you can edit this later. Um, you know, I, I get 
a lot of emails from people who are so berserko about government decisions and formations and activities. Listen, let's, let's be concerned about unrighteousness. Let's not be freaking out about forms of government as though America is in the Bible. America is the next human experiment on the planet. Well, our government's becoming socialist. Okay. I mean, do, do you find the Apostle Paul freaking out? There's an emperor and he's telling everybody what to do. doesn't even comment on it. There's no civics experiment in the Bible that's being taught. So, you know, is our government doing some things that we don't like, we think are even bad ideas? Yeah. Yeah. You want to visit some other governments in the world? <laughs> you want a cause? There are, there are more needed causes for governmental reform than the one here. Now, do, am I opposed to governmental reform? No, not at all. But just don't confuse the gospel message with social governmental activity. The gospel has been preached in every form of government from tribal leadership to dictatorships to emperors to this latest experiment called democracy. The gospel doesn't need democracy. As a matter of fact, it has thrived and done its work for most of the time in non-democratic locations. Now, am I glad we have a democracy here? Yes. But quite honestly, no. Because this is, this is, I need to stop, don't I? This is the most disrespectful group of Americans. We lack respect. We don't know what to do with authority. We don't know what to do. Why? Because one man, one vote. I've got power. I pay power to the people, baby. You know, and it breeds in us this sense of arrogance. It doesn't serve Christians well when we come to this topic today of looking at the authority of God. You know, the government that's in the Bible isn't democratic. It's theocratic. It's closer to a benevolent dictatorship than anything else. That screws us up, doesn't it? You climb in your prayer closet almost like it's a voting booth. <laughs> Curtain closes behind you and you cast your ballot on what you believe God should be doing. No, no, no. That's not Christianity. God is God. Let your words be few. Let them be well informed by God's perspective. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He's not up for a vote. He won't be running for re-election. Right? His policies are not up to be amended by us. One of the reasons why American Christians are having such a hard time is we think we ought to be able to change everything. There are some things in God that are unchangeable. And we approach them in holy reverence and we bow to them. That's our role. And being an American makes that a little bit of a challenge for us. But an accurate picture of the world in this passage is that the world hates. That's the posture here. Now, while I'm in the realm of politics, doesn't, doesn't the evening news and politics present Christians and the conservative right as the hateful people? I mean, isn't that what we're commonly taught? It, it's those people who represent God who hates. But when I come to the Bible, I find the Bible says, no, no, let's be clear here. 
the world hates. It is actively in ill will against God. Secondly, the world in this passage, as Jesus said, loves its own. It loves its own. See, you know, and this is, this is what was so greatly helpful for us last week. When Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you, oh, what an illustration just came up for us in that moment. Because you and I couldn't be any more different than the perfect Son of God. Now, don't you and I have a problem loving people that are different than us? Whether they're different race, different temperament, different amount of money, different attitude about our favorite subject. Now, do you understand? We, we are these enemies and opposers of God. And Jesus turns around and agapes us. He lavishes his love on us. And then he says, love one another that way. Now, the world, what you're going to find in the world is the world loves its own. In other words, if I can see me in you, I love you. As long as I can see some of me in you. If I can see a lot of me in you, we are going to be tight. If I can't see much of me in you, we're going to have problems. We're going to have big problems. Why? Because I'm an idolater. Apart from the grace of God, I'm the most important thing on the planet. And I think everybody else ought to be like me. And if you're not like me, kill it and need it, you know? Get rid of that thing. It's not like me. I don't know what to do with it. Ooh, it's not like me. Well, okay, that's the world. Be careful, Christians, that you don't get rusty. Start loving like the world. Let this intrude on who you are. Third, Jesus says the world doesn't recognize or know God. Now, this is, this is an important statement because Jesus makes this statement in a religiously humid environment. It's 100% humidity here of religiousness going on all around Jesus. And Jesus says to that community, you don't know God. So, so don't fall into this mysterious sense of, well, you know, I get around people who are religious. Well, Jesus didn't assume because you're religious, you knew God. The basis for whether you knew God was how you related to him in this passage. If you don't fall down and acknowledge him as the son of God, then you don't know God. Well, this shoots a hole in a bunch of religions. But Jesus, he, he says something in this passage here. Verse, verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now, now they have no excuse for their sin. They have no excuse for their not knowing God and for their rejection of God. Because God has put something on display. That man can know God if he wants to know God. Like Romans chapter 1 verse 19 in your outline there. It says, For what can be known about God is plain to them. No matter what somebody else says, God says there is information that's plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. God doesn't look on the planet and see someone who legitimately has an excuse. God says, no, I, that's not possible. I've made things available and aware. All one need do is investigate it. Romans chapter 2 verse 1. 
Right after this passage here is a very interesting little statement. It says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. That's interesting here. There is built into man a sense of moral compass. That the moment any man sticks his head up out of the sand and says, that's wrong. The moment he does that, he gives that away. So the only true people who could be uh, with excuse would be people who have truly have absolutely no sense of right or wrong. Now, even in our postmodern world, there is still a sense of right and wrong. If nothing else, it's wrong for you to, to have convictions. That's wrong. Postmodern world hates the idea that you would hold anything firmly. And so they believe that's wrong. The, the moment you assess something is wrong. You are now playing in the realm of standards. There's a line somewhere. And the fact that there is a line says that somewhere there is right and wrong. Now, if I just take that one step farther, and if you're really honest with human society, you'll find that there are basic dynamics of human behavior that in every society, through every course of time, and in every location, they draw the line in the same place. There are certain behavior patterns that are wrong for everyone, everywhere. The moment you do that, you admit there is a standard. And the second you admit that there's a standard, the next question is, where'd the standard come from? There's a judge. There's somebody who writes the law. There's somebody who has made something to be right or wrong. So humanity, in just these two passages, has been testified to by the works of God in creation, and then specifically, as Jesus says, by his own works. The person of Jesus Christ who came to this earth and blew open history did things, as he said, that no other man had done that they witnessed. And John, remember, this is John's theme throughout this book. Many more things did Jesus do in the presence of his disciples. But these have been written down so that you may believe. Who's the you there? The people who walk with Jesus and watched him do it? No, the people who are going to read about what he did. So this, this is a sobering reality. All those incredible things Jesus did that drew crowds and people were amazed by him, they've been recorded. And the same accountability now is being held for every one of us who reads about them as the ones who saw them firsthand. Oh, well, I mean, could God really do that? Well, we'll find out in a minute whether God can do what he wants to do or not. Right, so there is a work that God has done in creation. You look at the creation, it testifies about the presence of God. There is the work of the person of Christ that testifies about the reality of God and who he is. And then there's a moral component in the heart of man that assesses things that are right and wrong, that testifies that there's a God out there who says what's right and wrong. That's why you say what's right and wrong, because there's a God who says what's right and wrong. So here would be my environmental warnings if I was in... EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, this morning. I'd be wanting to protect us, based on these passages, from the environment in which we live, right? First, don't be captivated by the world's natural beauty. The world, you will find the world appealing. You will. You will look at it. You will look at its ideas, at its practices, and it will be like a... Southeast Louisiana swamp at sunset. 
it will be attractive to you. You will long to cast your line and enjoy it. Be forewarned. You are in a highly corrosive environment. And that beautiful environment will eat your life. And you will begin to rust. Secondly, don't look at the world as innocent or neutral. This is a very biblically uninformed thing to do. To raise your eyes into the world and see, you watch the news and the the things that are really horrific. Those things, that's bad. Be careful about that. The things, other things that don't seem to be that way, we treat that like it's neutral. This is not a neutral world. This is a sin-soaked world. Even the good ideas have been dislodged from God in such a way that they are now corrupted. They are filled with salt water content and they will erode your life. Even the good ideas will do that. And the Bible, when we read a little further, we find out not only is this a sin-soaked world, it's a world under the influence and effect of the devil. Just a, uh, a chapter earlier, Jesus says the God of this world, he calls Satan, the God of this world is coming and he has no place in me. The God of this world was the title given to the devil by the Son of God because of the amount of influence that the devil has been given over this world. So he's a deceiver. When you gaze upon the world, make sure you're realizing that beautiful scenery. It's loaded with stuff that you were not easily going to see that is designed to have a detrimental effect on your life. Third, don't expect compatibility to be the common experience for your walk. Too many Christians are waiting for the world to tell us that you're doing the right thing. That this decision is a good one. It's valuable. That's the way to do that. We want to be compatible with popularity. We want to, we want to find our sense of comfort in what everybody else is doing. Don't wait for that day. Not based on what Jesus says. The world hates Christ. And if you're following him, it hates you as well. That's the environment that we're in. Now, what does it practically mean that the world hates Christ? <clears throat> right, when you walk out today, it will not be easy to see this if you're not looking for it biblically. Because it's not like they're going to be guys with T-shirts on, you know, with Jesus in a big circle and an X through it, you know. Official God-hater hat. Hate God. Yeah, right here. Hate Christ. Hate him. Uh, I don't know if you've ever even bumped into somebody like that. Maybe, maybe a couple in your whole life. They weren't walking around that way here either. But Jesus identified, here's the reality, that this world hates Christ. Right? First, the world hates his righteousness. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Right? The, the unrighteousness that exists in the heart of man causes man to hate the truth. Of God, And therefore to suppress it, to hide it, to shove it to the side. Look in verse 21. For although they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What did they do? They exchanged. They exchanged something. Look at verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. This is the world that we live in. So what the world has done, it has said, you know, there is a God who is worthy of my life. Now, do people say it in these words? No, but Romans reveals this is exactly what's going on in the heart of a man. That I will not honor him as God. I will honor that as God. That thing over there, that person over there, that pursuit in my life right over there, I will honor it as God. It will shape me. It will make me who I am. It will define what I will do with my life, the values that I will hold. If I'm going to lie about something, it's going to be based on whether or not that gets furthered. Right? I mean, isn't that what most lies are about? How many lies are about defending the glory of God? Why do we lie? Because if we tell the truth, it will hinder our pathway to what? To godliness? <laughs> no. It will hinder my pathway to wherever God is for me. That thing over there. You know, I might not get that deal. I'm going to make that money. So I'm going to lie about that. Well, in that moment, man, I just described Christians, didn't I? Hello? I don't know I was talking about the world a second ago, but that, that was a description of Christians. That was a description of rust. That was a description where the world has exchanged something else for God, and there now for has to live in light of whatever their God is. And we have become rust buckets, and we do it too. Now, we ultimately don't deny Christ. But along the way in our lives, we've got a lot of rust creeping into our lives. Secondly, the world hates his light. Jesus Christ came bringing light into the world. Look in John chapter 1. <clears throat> John chapter 1, verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet, the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The light came into the world, and his own people did not receive the light. Look in John chapter 3. Famous verse 16 that we all know. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Look just below that in verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. See, this is right in line with what we just saw in Romans. In Romans chapter 1, man exchanged the glory of God for the glory of creation. Man found in creation something that it wanted and said, God, step aside. We want that. Now, on the way to wanting that means you now are going to do things differently. 
You're not going to do things the way in which the Bible created things to be done. You're going to do things differently now because you're on a different path for a different reward. And then the light of God comes in the person of Christ. But see, I love the path I'm on because I love the reward that I'm after because I love the idolatry that I have said is so important. I grew up thinking that money was everything. So I stomp people, do what I got to do to get the buck. So I live that way and the light of God comes. I've got two choices here. Abandon my way and embrace Christ or hate the light. Hate the light. That's not my word. That's the Bible's word. That's how God views rejecting him. It is an act of hatred. It's not just personal preference. You know, but listen, listen, you got, you, got, you got your God thing going on. You know, I'm for that. You know, I'm religious. I'm spiritual, too. You know, I just just kind of not in the same place that you're in. But, you know, I respect that. Really, I respect that. Well, that's great that you use that terminology, but that's not the terminology God uses. God says, the moment you exchange me for anything else, you now hate me. Whoa, really? Well, that, that, that's what this is talking about. So why is it that people don't, just don't embrace Christ? Because they love wickedness. Wickedness. Ah, oh, Keith, that's a... That's a Big $10 religious word there. Wickedness. I mean, come on. Everybody's wicked. Yeah, well, because the Bible defines wickedness with things like greed, jealousy, pride. That's wicked in the Bible. You know, for us, it's like torture and terrorism and murder and rape. You know, we got a little different list of wicked. It's a little over the top to use wicked for us, but it's not for God. God says these things are wicked and men love their own ways. Therefore, they don't want the light of Christ in their life. And listen, when you're interacting with somebody, and this is probably all of us before we, by God's grace, came to know him. And you interact with somebody and you're, you're trying to encourage them into the kingdom. Do you want to know why they don't come? It's because they will not come. They won't come because they love something else. They love their life. Remember Jesus over and over and over again said, you know, if you want to find your life, you've got to lose it. Well, I, I love my life. Even if it's not working right, I've got to figure it out. Even though it doesn't work. I mean, I, 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 that's what I want. So for me to abandon all that and, and choose Christ, I, I don't want to do that. That's why I won't come. And I'm without excuse. So this is really at the heart of man's indecision about God. The world hates his conviction. It hates the conviction. John chapter 7, verse 7 there. It says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Speaking of his disciples before their time was going to come. But it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus made a proclamation about the immorality of the human heart. And the world hates that. The world hates his authority. Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Jesus completely assumes that no matter what any Christian has going on in their life, he has all authority and he can tell you what to do. Well, Jesus, you know, I've got this, I've got this thing going on. It's a hot deal. You know, I've got this stuff happening in my life. I mean, I'm glad to know you. Thank you for your forgiveness, cleansing, help me, you know, help, helpful books and stuff. That's really cool, making me feel better. I've got this thing going on over here, see. And Jesus turns around and says, 
Oh, that's nice. Go. Well, yeah, I don't know if you heard me, uh, Lord. I've got this thing happening over here for me. That's a really big thing. And, you know, you're welcome to bless it, be a part of it, join me in it. Well, hey, we'll bring Christianity into this thing. And Jesus, assuming that he really does have all authority, he says, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were speaking. Go. <laughs> because he rightfully assumes he has all authority. He can move the chess pieces any way he wants. He can do with us anything he wants. And you know, when he teaches us, he says, now you go into all the world, and you preach the gospel and you baptize them. Right. Any Christians here haven't been baptized yet. See, just proving we're good Americans, aren't we? That's just a suggestion, you know. know, Can we vote on that, this baptism thing? It's a command from the one who has all authority. It's good that the Bible gets this thing off on the right foot. Immediately God says, hey, you saved? Go be baptized. Well, I'm going to get to that. Oh, really? Well, that's the way you'll walk all your Christianity out. I'm going to get to that. Be baptized and then go teach people to observe all that I've commanded. Some of your translations say to obey. The Son of God actually thinks that he has the right to tell everybody on the planet to obey him. Now, you know, the world hates that because you're not the boss of me. Ain't nobody the boss of me. You don't tell me what to do. Who do you think you are? God? Well, yeah, but... There, there, is a, there is an issue in the human heart that thinks, this is modern man's thinking, this is especially American modern man's thinking, that God is on the hot seat and he has to answer to us. Tragedy happens in the world. And what happens? People put God on trial, don't they? Well, if God's, a, you know, furred browed and everything, if God's a God of love, then how does he let this happen and that happen and that happen, huh? Like God's on trial. Ooh. I don't, I don't think that we're in touch with reality. Do you understand? We don't get to ask the questions. We don't get to cross-examine God and tell him he has to answer us in the categories that we deem he has to answer us in. Listen, you wouldn't do that if you grew up in England in the 1500s and there was a king. You wouldn't do that to the king. You wouldn't be caught behind closed doors speaking about the king that way. But we're Americans. We talk about whoever we want, however we want. We're on the radio. Have you heard us? <laughs> we're broadcasting all over the world. We malign everyone freely. Freedom of speech, buddy. I can say about God whatever I want. Listen, I'm just telling you, there is no constitution in heaven. There is no amendment rights in heaven. Uh, your attorney will not help you when you stand before God. You're going to find out that there's one God. Right? You're going to find out, Right? Romans chapter 9. And this is, you want to hear erosion in the church? This is an eroding statement in the church. Try not to chase this too far. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Has God done something wrong? Huh, we should question. By no means, Paul says, for God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up 
that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Ah, you like them apples. How many of y'all think Pharaoh needs to contact an attorney? Right? And say, hey, hey, God, who do you think you are? Hardening me? You raised me up so you could show your power? You know, it, it was sort of like, you know, sort of like building a footstool just so you could go. Pharaoh, oh, Pharaoh, come over here. And God just steps on top of him and goes, I'm God. All the world has thought he was God. And all the plagues, you know, the ten plagues, you realize the ten plagues of Egypt? They were all judgments on the gods of Egypt. They were God saying, here, bring those over here as well. I'll step on them next. I'm God. These things are not God. Watch this. Pharaoh, come over here. I'm God. How do we like that? Do we like that treatment of Pharaoh? See, but God is God. He has all authority. It'd be good if we would learn to crawl before God and tremble a little bit instead of thinking that it's our right to cross-examine Him. The only people have a hard time with God's doctrine of election because man thinks it's not right for God to have the right? No, no, no. Man needs to have the rights. Man needs to have the right to choose God or reject God. That's man's deal. How about if God has the right to choose man or reject man? Well, no, that's not right. Boom. Right? Attitude of the world found in the church. Hostile environment because the world hates God. It hates his righteousness. It hates his authority. The world hates his grace. The world hates the grace of God. Right? Look in 1 Corinthians there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's foolish. Everything that we believe and hold dear, the world thinks is foolish. A waste of your life and your time to believe it. It's folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. What's the folly that was preached? It's the gospel. The gospel of God's saving grace. That anyone who ever gets into a right relationship with God does so 100% on the basis of God and his activity and not on the basis of any merit on our part. Not a bit at all. Now, you know what? The world hates that. I hate the idea of being a charity case. Don't you? Being told I'm helpless and I can't save myself and there's nothing I can do to save me. Be telling me there's nothing I can do. I'll do something. Hey, I may not be perfect, but you know, I'm pretty good. Well, really, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible disqualifies me and we hate that idea. Isn't it interesting that every false religion as well as false Christian cultural religions 
are all based in human efforts. Not a one of them is based in the grace of God. Don't you find that interesting? There isn't like this alternative Christianity out there that's equally embracing the mercy and grace of God and the self-sacrificing atonement that somebody else took the blame for the guilty so that we could become innocent before God completely based on... Isn't it interesting that there's no other religion out there that teaches that? Every other religion binds itself to man's activity and what he does because the world hates the grace of God. It's an affront Let me walk through some practical issues here. Hopefully you've been comfortable so far. This will be the most painful moment. Appreciate when doctors tell you that. Okay, this is going to (laughs) hurt. I think I'd rather be surprised. The world has rejected God's rule and God's way. That's, That's what's at the heart of hatred. To hate something is to reject it. So be clear that, that when we say the world hates God, it's not just because they walk around blaspheming God and they walk around cursing God and wearing their T-shirts and hats. It's because they have rejected God and exchanged something else in his place. That's the hatred of the world, right? Uh, they have rejected God in the category of defining God. Islam is not speaking of the same God defined by God. Right? Jesus clearly says, for those of us who are getting way too ecumenical and got too much rust growing in our theology, Jesus says, if you reject me, you reject the Father. If you don't, that's what's just this passage we just read this morning. If you don't believe in me, you don't even know the Father. So you cannot run around and say that Christianity and Islam gets along. It does not. Christianity speaks for itself. Not some cultural version, but when it speaks for itself, it says if you reject Christ, you reject God, period. So, but the world hates that. The world of Islam hates that. It hates the idea about who Christ is if you read the Koran, who we believe him to be based on the Bible. G- groups in the United States, groups that are, that are you know, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, groups trying to do a whole lot of good for people who need some help. Acknowledge that. Appreciate that. But it starts with a fatal flaw theologically. This doesn't mean that I'm not glad that it's helping people, okay? But theologically, what it starts with, that you need the help of a higher power as you define him to be, you have ventured into a rejection of the God who is self-disclosing. You don't get to define God for who he is. He is who he is. You get to discover who God is. You don't get to define who God is. But the world hates the idea that God can't be made in our own image and likeness. The world has rejected God's rule in the category of defining marriage and family and sexuality. Now listen, the rust is falling off the church in this category profoundly. Marriage is no longer a covenant for life. It's no longer a covenant for life. It's nominalized for personal pleasure rather than for glorifying God. Let me let your marriage get hard and see why you're in it. I'm in it for me and I'm not happy anymore. It's not doing for me what I thought it would do. Okay, well, the world hates the idea that you would glorify God and you'd work through that for the glory of God. You would let God come in and transform sinners 
and change them so that someone who's not like you could be loved by you. Oh, I don't know if I can do that. Well, how are you going to be a Christian? Love one another as I have loved you. You, Jesus saying this, you who are so different than me. There's almost nothing in you that's like me. You're so self-oriented and non-God-oriented. And yet Christ sets his love on us. And then he says, now love one another that way. Well, you don't understand. My wife is so different than I am. Thunk. It's God falling off his throne. Thunk. Keith ain't nothing more different than me and you. And I'm loving you every day of your life. You go love one another the way I love you. Can you do that? Yes. Do I want to do it? No. Because the world doesn't want to do it. And I'm hanging around the world. The world's influencing my thoughts. Fidelity is increasingly rare. Increasingly rare. To find a marriage today where there hasn't been infidelity. Increasingly rare. That's tragic. Why is this? Because the world hates the image of God in marriage. And when you read Ephesians, and I put this in your outline there, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's marriage. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it, marriage, refers to Christ and the church. That's what your marriage is about. More than it's just about personal happiness, although it is a part of that. It's about revealing God and the glory of God through two becoming one. That's what it's about. Well, the world hates that image. Jesus said the world would hate him. Well, it's him on display. So the world will attack marriages left and right. Family. One out of three children live apart from their biological father today. And this is an article. This, <clears throat> this, is, this is shockingly tragic. CNN.com, an article from April of this year. Had she been born a generation earlier, Kim Hoffman might have had a shotgun wedding. As it turned out, she and Steve Miller took the time to plan their dream nuptials outdoors on an organic farm and with their 10-month-old daughter in tow. A pre-marriage birth certainly wasn't what her father wanted for his only daughter, said Hoffman of Oakland, California. But seven months into her relationship with Miller, the unplanned pregnancy simply changed life's course. Right? Carefully chosen words, unplanned pregnancy. It would help us if we use biblical terms. Right. Unplanned pregnancy in the Bible is a result of fornication, which is in a list of sins that God is against. We would have headed down this path eventually. The pregnancy just accelerated things, she said, of the couple's cohabitation. It's another nice word. The birth of Sadie and their 2005 wedding. It was the way it was meant to be. Really. It's not the way God meant it to be. Along with magazine cover grabbers like Angelina Jolie and Bristol Palin, Hoffman, today a 39-year-old mother of three, is part of a now record-breaking trend of women who give birth outside of wedlock. Nearly 40% of babies born in the United States in 2007 were delivered by unwed mothers. 40%. Now, Now, do you see here? They exchanged the image of God for something else, expediency, pleasure, 
different patterns. God said, I will reveal my glory through a man and a woman coming together in marriage and children being the fruit of that relationship. And that will reveal something about me. Forty percent of all children in this country now do not come from that image because the world hates the image of God. Statistics such as these, which include for the second year in a row a bump in teen pregnancies, leave Sarah Brown concerned. She worries about the children born to unwed parents, about the disadvantages they often face, including increased likelihood of poverty and great high school dropout rates. Now, can I just tweak you right here for a second? Because you, you, you probably listened to that and didn't catch it. If I stood up here this morning, right, because right now I know for some I'm, I'm, un, I'm unsympathetic, I'm dogmatic, uh, and you're choking on some of this. If I stood up here this morning and I took up the interest of these children, said, do you know what these children are being, 40% of these children, they're being invited into settings where this is going to happen to them. The statistics are this is going to happen to them. And they're going to suffer this way. And I portrayed the children as being victimized by sin. I could get many, many people today to rise up and be concerned. But do you know the concern in the Bible is not first for how this affects man. It is how sin affects God. And see, the world hates God. So if I stand up here today and I fight for God's point of view, there will be many today who will go, Dude, that, you know, that, that's what's wrong with the church. People like you, that's what's wrong with the church. Listen, Jesus started this statement not with the church hates, but with the world hates. The problem theologically from God's perspective, it's not that you've got hateful people like me in the pulpit. It's that the world hates God. And so the moment I speak on God's behalf, I'm going to be saying something that the world is going to hate. And unfortunately, that many in the church are going to have a hard time trying to figure out whether I want to believe that or not. Because there's a little bit too much rust growing in our system here. Sexuality. No longer is sexuality reserved for marriage only. It's not reserved for marriage only. It is open to any. It is open to any form. God designed the human body God designed the human life. God designed sexuality for a specific context and for that context only. So marriage is the only context. So, so let me just get before us something accurately said. I think this is not a Bible verse, but it's accurate. Are you married? Have all the sex you can stand. Hallelujah. <laughs> I just changed people's afternoon plans, I can tell. <laughs> uh. All right, that's that's Bible clearly reveals that. Married, bless you, enjoy, it's a gift. In that context, you're married, you qualify. Go. Unmarried, have no sex at all. You understand when the Bible speaks about sex, it is only speaking about the context of a married couple. It knows nothing of the idea that unmarried people would borrow from the married world and put it in their life. Listen to me. In any form or fashion. 
Well, I feel like Bill Clinton now. Well, what qualifies for sex? Well, it's, it really is by God's design. And, and if you've, you know, <laughs> if you're breathing and got hormones, you kind of have to agree with me on this one. Uh, there are certain activities that lead to sex. Intercourse. Okay, single people, teenagers. The world reaches into the married world and borrows pieces of it. The Bible never does that. It never does that. The Bible never says for you to come as close to intercourse as you can, but as long as you stop right there, well, you're all right. No, because that activity is reserved for a husband and a wife. If it's not your husband, it's not your wife, then it's inappropriate. Can you see this real clearly? If... I don't want to pick anybody, okay? I'm not going to pick anybody to demonstrate this. But let's suppose man A, who is married to woman B, decides he's not going to have intercourse with woman D. He's just going to do everything leading right up to it. And then he's going to show how talented he is to throw the brakes on before it goes too far. And he's going to stop right there. Would anybody in the church have a problem with that? Would you be all right? You know, just like you walked in here today and there's this guy with somebody else's wife. And, but, they're, but they're not having intercourse, Keith. I mean, come on. I mean, so they're just making out on the pew right there. No harm, no foul. I mean, it's nothing permanent. Come on. But I, I, you'd have a problem with that, wouldn't you? See, the problem with it is because in the Bible, all that activity is for the context of marriage. It's not for the context anywhere else. The context for everywhere else is keep your hands to yourself. That's the context for everywhere else. Now, this sounds radical, doesn't it? I just, I just launched a church into the most prudish context. Because I am telling you, if you're single, you should keep your hands to yourself. Your lips and everything else are part of you. Keep it to yourself. Now, the problem is, that's not what the world is doing, is it? But remember, the world hates Christ. And so it is attacking his ideas because it's exchanged other ideas for his ideas. So now you walk up to a single person or teenager in the church and you go, boom, and lots of rust because single people are all over each other. It's inappropriate. It's not godly. It's what the world does. And I don't even have time to get off into some of the other elements here. All right, let me do this before I run out of time. I'm editing. Stay with me. Uh, I have to do this. I have to do this. I'm sorry. I have to do it. Listen, I have to do it because the culture is screaming in this category. If I'm silent on this, I'm not serving you. Okay. Uh, In your outline there, sexuality is no longer heterosexual in this culture. It's flung the door open for homosexuality. 
and it is treating and speaking about homosexuality as though it is normal. Okay, because the world hates Christ and his righteousness. Right? When you look in the Bible, you find that God made male and female with distinctives in order to represent him in his glory. So isn't it just like the world to attack that and to eliminate those distinctives and now make male-male couples and female-female couples as viable as male-female couples? Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. When God created man in his image, it required that man would be male and female with distinctives that would be able to come together in this next verse. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Being fruitful and multiplying requires the distinctive of being male and female, doesn't it? This is this is the very basic creation of God that gets attacked and hated by teaching that homosexuality is okay. It is telling God, God, your idea was wrong. What you created in the beginning was wrong. We exchange your idea for a different one. Well, then God says, it's because you hate me. Well, I don't really hate God. I mean... Hey, the debate going on in the world, I've got newspaper articles here about denominations that are debating this issue. Right, here's a headline from our paper, paper in August, Sexually Active Gay Clergy Allowed. Now, where's the news headline in that? It's not in the gay clergy. That's old news. It's in now the sexually active gay clergy is allowed. And this is the Lutheran denomination. Martin Luther would die twice. If he ever heard this, glad that he's enjoying the presence of God and not being caught up in all that. But you understand the world a few years ago, this would have been so foreign even to them. And now now churches are trying to figure out how to incorporate that. Can you can you hear the rust falling? Because the world closed its eyes and went into a corrosive environment and got eaten alive by an agenda that the world has. But the world hates Christ. And it will hate him in this category. Romans 1. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Right, this is a very informing verse. Very, very informing verse. Because it depicts people who are consumed with passions for something. That in our culture means it's legit. You're going, to, what, you're going to tell me to deny myself? It's legit. It's genetic. It's whatever. It, it, so if I feel that way, I'm just not supposed to do that? Okay, well, this Bible verse describes people who are consumed with passions. 
but it says that they're lies. So it informs me that we're capable of being consumed with a passion for that which is a lie. Man is capable of that. Man is capable of being consumed with a passion for something that the Bible calls shameless acts. So, so don't legitimize the fact that you feel drawn to that passionately as though that gives you permission. You know, the angry guy who ends up beating the heck out of somebody and taking their life, and then he goes to jail for that, he felt passionate about what he was doing. Strongly passionate, very strongly passionate. And he committed a shameless act. The person who steals Bernie Madoff, he felt passionate about what he was doing. Should he just not deny that? No, go ahead, Bernie, rip everybody off, ruin their lives financially. Because you feel passionately about it. Right? We, won't, we don't think this way in other categories, do we? We shouldn't think this way in this category either. Whether, we, whether someone feels strongly about a pursuit, it is God's defining of that pursuit that settles the issue. It's not what God wants. Now listen, for us, this admonition, I think I put this in your outline, maybe not. The world, listen, the world hates God's rule and God's way. So Christian, stop shopping for advice. Stop shopping for values. Stop shopping for acceptance. Stop shopping for reinforcement in the world. If I'm going to live for the glory of God amidst a world that is corrosive and hates God, I cannot wait and hope the world is going to affirm what I do next and appreciate me. I'm looking in the wrong place. Stop apologizing for being different, for being a virgin. Many young people just seem you know, kind of like, ooh, man, I just hope the conversation doesn't go there. You know, I'm in the locker room. <sighs> Stand for righteousness. Declare the glory of God. God didn't intend people to be sleeping all over the place. If you stand for righteousness, you're standing in the right place. Oh, well, uh, I might not be liked. Welcome to John 15. The world hated me. It's going to hate you, too. When the world stops having odds with you, it's because you have gotten too much like them. Because remember, the Bible says the world will love its own. You start looking, smelling, and acting like them, they'll like you, man, because they see themselves in you. Stop apologizing for being goody-two-shoes. Stop apologizing for not buying overpriced, image-oriented clothing and cars. Stop apologizing for it. You don't have to wear the most expensive thing. Something else is of good quality. It doesn't have to have that label on it. Stop acting like it does. Oh, people look at me weird because my shoes are not the right brand. Yeah. All right. Question. Do you see the corrosive effect on the church in these categories? Do you see it? The world is corroding the church. So when Jesus warned them, his warning was, I'm telling you these things to keep you from stumbling. I'm telling you these things because I, I don't want you to be surprised by them. I don't want you to be unaware of them. I don't want you to be tripped up by them. This corrosive environment is coming for you. It's coming to make you like it. I'm telling you these things before they happen. So that you won't fall into those things. All right, for the sake of time, 
let me just make a statement here. When you look at the context here, what, what's the remedy in this context? The remedy in this context is the Holy Spirit. I've sent the Spirit into the world to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. John 16, verse 4. That's where Jesus goes. This is all in one statement. I'm telling you this. I'm preparing you for the world. I'm telling you that it hates me. It doesn't acknowledge the Lordship of Christ. It rejects God. And when you live in it, it's going to seek to do that to you. But the Holy Spirit's coming. And when he comes, he's going to lead you into the truth. And he's going to convict concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, this morning, I want to make sure that we are available to the Spirit's conviction. Matt, go ahead and come. Turn with me to Ephesians 5. I'm going to close with this thought. Ephesians 5, verse 1. This, this, this verse, this passage, this chapter would both answer the admonition that Peter gave last week. What does it look like to love one another? And also, uh, what does it look like to not be corrupted by the world? Right? Look at this. Verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. Right? This is John 15 right here, isn't it? Love one another as I have loved you. And he gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But, listen, when you go back and you read John 15, this is exactly the same construction. Jesus talks about love, and then he talks about the world. Paul talks about loving one another, and then he talks about the world. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, that's a broad word right there. It's a word that would include foreplay. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Look in verse 15. Look Carefully, then, how you walk. I want, I want us to do that. This is about walking. This verse Jesus gave in John 16 was about stumbling. I say these things to you to keep you from stumbling. Paul says, look carefully, then, how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, 
do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay. In just a moment, we're going to stand. We're going to ask for God to help us with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This aspect of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has come to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now let me ask you before you you get standing here. Is there anything going on in your life that you are needing to be convicted about? Is there any aspect of your life that the world has taught you to treat it it's not that big a deal. It's not a big deal. Everybody else is doing it. Even the other Christians that I talk to are doing it. Okay, that, that's, that's grieving the Holy Spirit. He's come to this world to convict the world. Stop telling him to leave that area of your life alone. Stop telling him that. Okay, I'm not looking at anybody right now. I'm telling you right now as your pastor, I'm hearing way too much sexual immorality. I'm hearing way too much drunkenness in this church. Do you, do you feel convicted? There's something in your life saying that that's not right. It's not right because God said it's not right. Do not draw comfort and affirmation from the world who's telling you, oh, no, 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 that's right. It's okay. You're not nearly as bad as some other people. You're okay. That category is all right. Don't listen to the world because it hates Christ. It hates him. It hates his glory. It hates his righteousness. Now, if you love his righteousness, because that's what the Spirit came to convict you of, sin and righteousness and the judgment of God, if you love his righteousness, if you're receiving the ministry of the Spirit, well, then this morning, you have some serious choices to make. There are some of us here who need to stop grieving the Holy Spirit and respond to being convicted. There are categories in your life where you are wrong. in agreement with a world who hates God. Let's not be numbered among people who hate God. Because in your moment of sanity, everybody having a moment of sanity right now? You're thinking clearly? Do you love God? Do you hear me? Do you really love God? I really love God. What are you doing? What are you doing? stand up together. Okay, guys, listen, I, I, I love you dearly. I have no intention of making this easy because if you, some of you don't make a serious break with issues in your life, you will make no break with it. So in just a moment, what I'm going to do is that's going to lead us. I'm going to invite people forward to pray. And you're going to come forward and you're going to pray as long as it takes for you to get right with God. And everybody else will be dismissed as they feel led to be dismissed.
Okay, so if you're here this morning and the Holy Spirit's ministry has convicted you, in just a moment as Matt begins to play, you come forward and you find a place down here where you're going to take your stuff and you're going to leave it here. And you're going to respond to the ministry of the Spirit. Because this is the loving Savior who comes to you and says, I tell you these things to keep you from falling away. If you're stumbling, you are on your way. By God's grace, the Word of God is available to you this morning to repent and to be convicted and see change in your life. So if you're going to respond to God this morning, come. Come and pray up here in the front. As long as you need to stay, you stay. As Matt leads us in this song, we're just going to continue to let folks stay here. So if you're wanting to be dismissed, you're welcome to do that. Just head out into the foyer and you can enjoy some fellowship there. Father, thank you for your loving guidance to us. Lord, thank you for informing me of a setting that though beautiful, it is corrosive. And it is after my life and it is seeking to destroy what I count as most important in my life. And that's your glory being seen in and through me. Lord, this morning, separate us from the counsel of those who hate you. God, distance us from those who have chosen to reject your rule in their life. God, we are those who have chosen to welcome your rule in our lives. God, we welcome you in our lives. We love you, Lord. We don't love anything more than we love you. We love no pleasure, no reward, no fame, no affection in our hearts is greater than that of yours. God, we love you. God, draw us again. Holy Spirit, convict us. Uncomfortably convict us that we might be done with things that are crowded into our lives. They're rusting out the life that you've given us to walk. This morning, God, reclaim your own. Move through this place, God. Before folks stumble and fall away, move in this place, God. And move them to respond to you. Holy Spirit, be moving in this place this morning. Draw us to yourself, to a place of safety and blessing and care and healing and freedom and deliverance. God, do that for us this morning as we wait on you.